Does everybody deserve forgiveness? How, how would you answer that question? Does everybody deserve forgiveness? Doesn't Christianity teach that everyone deserves to be forgiven? A few months ago, I got a call from a friend who shared some sad news with me, some horrible news, in fact. Uh, she shared with me that a mutual friend of ours, his daughter, had been crossing the street, and she was uh, walking in a crosswalk, and she was hit by a car, and she died instantly. And as soon as I heard that news, my heart just sank, and I, I felt almost nauseous. Teenager, 16 years old, doing exactly what she was supposed to be, crossing in a crosswalk, and somebody wasn't paying attention, hit her and killed her. How, how do you respond in a situation like that? So I got on the phone and I called my friend and he was just in shock. And so we only talked probably for about two minutes because I could tell he knew who I was, but not much else. And I just told him I loved him, that I cared for him. I was praying for him. If he wanted to talk at some point, let me know. I hung up and I prayed for him. I prayed that God would provide him with some measure of comfort. I prayed that he would turn to God and find some comfort. I prayed that he would find some hope and some peace. I prayed for his family as well. And I prayed that the day might come when he and I would have the opportunity to talk again. And that day came just a few weeks ago and he called me on the phone and I said, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? What can I do for you? And he said, I need to talk to a priest. And I kind of chuckled inside because I said, I wonder what Anne, my wife, and my kids would think if they knew that I was a priest. But, uh, you know, he's not from a Christian background. And so just the fact that he called me, uh, because we don't share the same faith, just the fact that he called me and wanted to talk, I was just like, yeah, what an opportunity to be able to talk with him. So we just talked. And I just said, how are you doing? What's going on? How are you feeling? How are you coping? How is life? How's your wife doing? How are your kids doing? what's happening in your marriage and your family. He just poured out his heart. You know, he talked about the hard times. He talked about how the, the, obviously the thought about his daughter never really goes away. Sometimes the pain is greater. Sometimes the pain is less. But it, it's a challenge day to day. And then he thinks as, as a husband and a father, I've got to care for my wife. I've got to care for my kids. I've got to point them in the right direction. And I don't have the answers. And that's why I'm calling you. Can you help me? I was like, yeah, let's talk. So we talked more and, and, and more and more. And then as we went on, he said, you know, the guy that killed my daughter, uh, he's reached out to me through our lawyers, and he wants to get together, and he wants to talk, and he wants me to forgive him, and I don't know what to do. I want to do the right thing, so could you give me the Christian perspective on forgiveness? So we talked about that for a little while, and then towards the end of the conversation, he said, yeah, but doesn't Christianity teach that everybody deserves to be forgiven? And I thought, that is one of the most profound questions that anybody could ever ask. Because that question gets to the very heart, it gets to the very core of the message of Christianity. And I want to look at that question. I want to talk about that question. I want to answer that question by looking at 
a story in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus was invited to dinner with a prominent member of society. Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, she kissed them, and she poured perfume on them. When you look at this story, you've got three main characters. We've got the Pharisee, we've got a prostitute, and we've got Jesus. It kind of, sounds kind of like the start of a joke, you know, a Jew, uh, a prostitute, and Jesus walk into a bar, you know, and you're like, what's going to happen with that? And it really is a good question. When you put those three people together, something is going to happen. The Pharisee. The Pharisee is a Jewish religious leader. He is a fine, upstanding member of society. He's from, in, in Jewish society, that's pretty much, you're getting pretty near the pinnacle of society. He's respected. He lives a good life. He cares for the poor. He gives alms to the poor. He does everything he can to follow what the law teaches in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in his Bible. He's trying to live a godly, good, right life. And that's who this guy is. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got this prostitute, right? She is anything but this Pharisee. So you've got this incredible contrast between these two people. And everybody at the dinner knows that these two don't normally mix with one another. And then right in the middle, you've got Jesus. And at this time in Jesus' ministry, not everybody had the same opinion of Jesus. He's a well-known public figure, and that's probably why he was invited to dinner. Some people are going to see Jesus as a rabbi. He's a good teacher, he knows the Bible, and he's, uh, he's a good Jewish teacher, and that's how people see him. For some other people, they see him as a prophet. They see him as one who knows God in a special way, who has special insight into things, into the mind of God, and is able to proclaim words that come from God. And there are a few people who maybe see him as something even more than that. Now, we who have gone to church uh, for many weeks, months, or years, sure, we're familiar with the idea because we've read before and we've heard sermons before. Jesus is the, is the Son of God who came to the earth to die and to rise again to bring salvation to everyone. But at this point in Jesus' ministry, the Pharisee has no clue, and most of the other people at the dinner have no clue exactly who Jesus is. And so right away, we're confronted with these two questions. First of all, what is the woman doing at that party? I mean, can she just walk in and sit down and, and, and join in in the dinner? And then secondly, what in the world is she doing to Jesus and corollary to that, and why is he letting her do this to him? The thing is, in that society, 
The woman walking into the dinner, the woman crashing the party is not unusual. Today, you're having a dinner party at your house and someone walks in off the street that, you know, you're calling 911 as to what's going on there. But in that day and age, no, it was completely fine because what would happen is they would, you know, this Pharisee throws a dinner party, invites Jesus to come. This woman hears that this party is going on. She hears that Jesus is going to be in there and it's perfectly reasonable for people to come in, stand around the sides of the walls, just kind of listening to the conversation. That was part of the culture in those days. What wasn't part of the culture in those days is a woman who's got this reputation, who's probably dressed in keeping with her profession, to go into that place to, you know, start crying on Jesus' feet, wiping her, her, her tears, wiping his feet uh, with her hair, etc. Think of this. You're at a restaurant, right? You have been invited to go to a restaurant with a couple of friends, one of whom's pretty well-known, pretty important. And a woman walks up and she starts doing this to the guest of honor. And you're going to be like, who is this woman? Who does she think she is? And what in the world is this guy doing allowing her to do this? When the Pharisee, verse 39, who had invited Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Pharisee's got two issues here. First is with the woman. Not a big deal that she shows up at his house. Really big deal that she's starting to do this to Jesus. And then secondly, he's like, and what in the world is Jesus doing allowing her to do this? If he's a prophet, if he's got a special line to God, he should know who she is and he should know better than to allow her to do this to him. Of course, the irony of the situation, and this always happens with Jesus, the irony of the situation is even though the Pharisee only thought this to himself. He didn't say it out loud. Jesus knew exactly who this woman was, and he knew exactly what the Pharisee was thinking. Watch what happens in the next verse. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Now, whenever Jesus says, I've got something to tell you, watch out, because he's got something to tell you, and you're not necessarily initially going to like it, but he's doing it ultimately for Simon's good. Simon, I have something to tell you. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. Denarius, it's about one day's wage for the average working person uh, in, in that society. So one guy owes 50 denarii. It's about I don't know, two months or so wages. Could have bought a lot of boots with that. You know, it's pretty, it's a good amount of money. The other guy owes 10 times as much, 500 denarii, two years worth of wages. But what's interesting is not the contrast initially, not the contrast between the gifts. Yes, one is 10 times more than the other, but the interesting part is that neither of them had the means to pay back that debt. And 
rather than giving them what they deserved, which in that society would have been being thrown in jail. Today, maybe, maybe not. It would take quite a bit to throw somebody in jail for not being able to pay back a debt. But in that society, whether it's 50 denarii, 500 denarii, if you can't pay it back, you're going to jail. But rather than having them thrown into jail, the money lender forgave the debts of both of them. And Jesus said, okay, in this situation, Simon, who do you think is going to be more appreciative? And he said, well, I guess it's the guy that had the bigger debt. And Jesus says, exactly, because he had a greater appreciation for the depth of his need and for the extent of forgiveness that he had received than the other guy had. Verse 44, then Jesus turned to the woman and said to, said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head but she's poured perfume on my feet. And I love, I love the way that Luke points this out. He says, Jesus looked at the woman, but said to Simon, Jesus showed that woman infinitely more respect than Simon had showed him. Social custom of that day, you walk into someone's house, they're supposed to give you water to wash your feet because you're walking on dirt roads in open-toed sandals and your feet are going to be dirty. So give them some water to wash their feet. Give them a, a, a kiss on the cheek. That's the way they greeted one another. Give them some uh, oil to anoint their head. That would have been maybe a little bit more than everybody might have done all the time, but it was something that would have been reasonable for, do, for them to do. It's kind of like... You invite someone important into your house. You don't shake their hand. You don't offer to take their coat. You don't ask them if you can get them something to drink. What's with Simon and his relationship to Jesus? He didn't have that appreciation and that respect for Jesus that he ought to have had for him, no matter whether he thought he was a rabbi or a prophet or something more or something in between. On the other hand, nobody could miss the woman's appreciation for Jesus. She made it very clear what she thought of Jesus. And then Jesus drives home the point of the parable. In verse 47, he says, Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has forgiven little loves little. And when you look at this, at first glance, it seems like what Jesus is saying is, because she has done this for me, because she has cried all over my feet, because she's kissed my feet, because she's wiped my feet with her hair, because she's poured perfume on my feet, because she has shown this love and honor to me, I'm going to forgive her. And that's probably what Simon was thinking. He's, he comes from a culture in which the idea is that the more good you do, the more likely it is that you're going to be forgiven. Yes, I've done some bad things, but if I do more good things, it can make up for those bad things. And God will love me and God will forgive me if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Or 
Maybe he's thinking, I'm not so bad. I'm the 50 denarii guy. Yeah, I need some forgiveness, but you know what? It's not nearly as much as this woman needs. And so I'm a good enough guy. I'm a fine, upstanding member of society. I deserve to be forgiven. And so, of course, God is going to forgive me. But that's not what Jesus is thinking here, and it's not what Jesus said. Jesus said that her sins had been forgiven. Therefore, she did this for him. What's going on is the woman realized who Jesus was and what he was offering to her and the forgiveness that was available if she's trusting in him. And as a result, she's amazed by that. And she, when she comes to the house and she sees Jesus there, she can't stop crying because she's so grateful for what he has offered to her. And the tears just start flowing. And then she looks and she sees that she's wetting his feet. And she says, oh my goodness, what am I doing? And I got to dry his feet, but I don't have a towel. So I use my hair. And she had brought that alabaster jar worth of perfume with her. So she obviously knew what she was going to do when she was going there. Maybe not the crying and the, and the wiping with the hair part, but she knew that she was planning to anoint Jesus' feet. Why? because of who he was and what he had done for her. And what Jesus is saying is the person who knows who I am and what I've done and who recognizes the extent of their debt and the extent of the forgiveness that they've received, they're going to have an appreciation for who I am and what I've done. It's just going to overflow like it did for this woman. But for Simon... That wasn't the case. And the irony of this is that a prostitute had a better idea of who Jesus was than this Pharisee did. Then Jesus looks at her and he says to her, your sins, verse 48, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests started talking among themselves and they said, who is this who even forgives sins? And then Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I love what Jesus says. He does not say your sins are no big deal. He does not say we're just going to forget about your sins. He does not say they're not important. He says your sins are forgiven. Simon's looking there and he's saying she is a huge sinner. And Jesus is saying, that's the one thing you got right in all of this. She is absolutely a sinner. But in spite of her sin, in spite of her inability to make up for, atone for, pay off her sins, I'm offering her forgiveness. And she has received it. He doesn't give her what she deserves. Instead, he gives her grace and mercy and love and forgiveness because Jesus never minimizes our sin, but he always maximizes his grace. And that, and that means that we have a a Savior who knows exactly who we are and exactly what we've done, and yet he still loves us. And that's how we can experience some freedom and release from our guilt. So let's come back to the question that we asked at the beginning. Doesn't Christianity teach that everybody deserves forgiveness? If you asked 
our three characters, Simon and the prostitute and Jesus. I think Simon would say, some people do and others don't. I deserve forgiveness because I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a religious leader. I do a lot of right things. And yeah, I've done some bad things, but my good things are better than my bad things. So I deserve to be forgiven. That's where Simon's going to be. And he's going to say, on the other hand, this woman, no, absolutely not. And especially after what she's just done today, she does not deserve to be forgiven. I think if you ask the woman, she'd say, I don't know about anybody else, but I know I don't deserve forgiveness. And I am so grateful that Jesus has offered it to me. And I think Jesus would say something that might be a little bit surprising to us, and I know it was to my friend when I, when I shared it with him. I think Jesus would say, nobody deserves to be forgiven. There is not a single human being who deserves to be forgiven. But I'm offering forgiveness anyway. I've paid your debt for you, and all you need to do is admit that you've got this unpayable debt, that you do not have the resources to pay it off, that you don't deserve forgiveness, and just ask me for it because I want to give it to you. I'm eager to give it to you. We've all sinned, every single one of us. We have all incurred a debt that we're unable to pay and none of us has the resources we need. So we don't deserve forgiveness, but we also can't deserve forgiveness. Think about it this way. If you pay off a debt that you have, if you trade for it, if you make up for it in some other way, it's not being forgiven, it's being repaid. And a debt that's repaid is not a debt that's forgiven. So we can't deserve forgiveness because it wouldn't be forgiveness if we deserved it. It's only forgiven if the person to whom I owe the debt freely chooses to release me from that debt based on absolutely nothing that I have done. It's only forgiven if they choose of their own free will, unrelated to who I am or anything that I've done, if they choose to release me from that debt. Grace is free only because the giver himself has borne the cost. Debts don't just vanish into thin air. The moneylender in Jesus' story, when he forgave the 550 denarii debt, that debt didn't just vanish into thin air. He absorbed the cost of that debt. He was out 500 and 50 denarii. He was never going to get that money back. He paid the price to forgive the people who owed him that money. When the debt's because of our sin and not just financial, when the debt is because of our sin, the price is much greater. And Jesus paid that price when he died on the cross. He paid for our sins so that we could be forgiven, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, for everybody who was alive at the time, for everybody who had lived before that, and for everybody who would live in the future, which includes us. Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. And the only, the only question is, are we humble enough to admit it? to say, I owe a debt I cannot pay because of my sin. He's paid it for me, 
and I just want it applied to my account. Lord Jesus, you've offered forgiveness. I'd like it. Please do forgive me. Christianity teaches that none of us deserves forgiveness, but God offers it to us anyway because that's the kind of God he is. Forgiveness is absolutely costly, not to us, but to Jesus. You know, any list of the, the most popular hymns in the English language has to include the hymn Amazing Grace, and it's probably right there at the top, uh, at the top of the list. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Amazing grace, how sweet that sound. Not sure that it's always should be played on bagpipes if you want it to be a sweet sound, but, you know, there it is. Think of those words, amazing, sweet sound, saved me, I'm found, I see. When you hear those words, you sing those words, and your heart is moved because you think about the unbelievable love and mercy and grace of God, and we're just taken, in a sense, out of this world and drawn into the presence of God as we sing those words and mean them. But then we look at these other words. Wretch, lost, blind. And we look at them and we say, I don't like those words so much. Maybe the lost one, because, you know, I can get lost and it's not really my fault. Maybe the blind one even. But I'm not terribly excited when you're going to call me a wretch. So give me just the amazing and the, you know, the sweet sound, and let's just kind of skip the wretch. I was reading a blog earlier this week, uh, and this woman was saying that one of the things that she loves about the church that she goes to is when uh, they sing Amazing Grace, there's a little uh, footnote, a little asterisk on the word wretch, and there's a footnote at the bottom that says, if you want, you can change that word to soul. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. And she said, most of the time I sing it that way because that's the way that I want it. And I love that my church gives me the option to do that. Uh, and, and it makes her feel good. But then she said something really interesting. She said, the problem is I don't appreciate being asked to make a deep theological decision on a Sunday morning. I come to church I come because I want to feel better about myself. And now I've got to ask, am I going to sing the song the way it was originally written and think of myself as a wretch, or am I going to sing it based on the footnote and, and you know, think of myself just as a soul? And I, I almost, you know, got on the phone, if I could find her phone number, and called her and said, hey, let's talk, you know? Because if you're not going to ask and answer that question on a Sunday morning, when are you going to ask and answer it? Because you're not going to do it on Sunday afternoon, and you're definitely not going to do it on Sunday night. And then Monday through Friday when you're at work, you're not going to be asking the question, am I a wretch or am I just a soul? Do I need God's grace or do I just really enjoy singing the song? You're not going to do it there. So that leaves Saturday and Saturday you're down the shore with your friends. How are you going to do that, right? But seriously, you know, right? In some ways, I'd rather sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Soul Like Me but if I really want to feel better, if I really want to be released from the guilt, if I really want to know that my sins are forgiven, if I really want that grace to be amazing, I've got to realize that no matter what I think, I am actually no better than that prostitute because I have a debt that I am incapable of paying, and if it is not for the grace of God, 
I'm dead and I have absolutely no hope. So whether you relate more with Simon the Pharisee or the sinful woman or somewhere in between, if grace is going to be amazing, you got to understand your need. John Newton wrote the song Amazing Grace. And those of you who are familiar with who John Newton was, he was a slave trader. He bought human beings and he sold them at a profit. He absolutely was a wretch and he knew it and the same was true for the prostitute both of them knew that they were sinners both of them knew that they didn't deserve to be forgiven and both of them were amazed by God's grace but Simon wasn't and the reason is because grace is only amazing if you know you don't deserve it I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine with me for a minute, somebody who knows everything about you. They can see your entire life. They can see, <coughs> excuse me, into your soul, into the depths of your heart. They see every sin. They see every fault. They see every failure. They've seen every bad thing that you've done. They know every harsh word that you've ever spoken. They know every wrong thought that you've ever thought. And they still love you. They look at you and say, there is nothing that you can do, nothing that you can think, nothing that you can say that will ever take me by surprise. I know how sinful you are. I know how broken you are. I know the extent of your debt and I still love you and I will always love you and there is nothing that you can do to make me love you any less and I'm offering you forgiveness. Imagine that there were such a person. Wouldn't you want to run to that person and say, please, I want that forgiveness. I want that person who knows the worst about me and still loves me. I want to be in his presence forever. And when you sin, when you have that harsh word, when you mistreat somebody, when you have that wrong thought, you run to him and you say, I did it again. Would you please forgive me? And he says, yes, of course I will because I love you and because I died for you. That's who Jesus is. And that's who the woman who anointed his feet saw Jesus to be. That's why she did that to Jesus because she said, he knows me better than anybody else and he still loves me. No one has ever treated me the way this man treats me. She's so overwhelmed by his love and forgiveness that she didn't care what anybody else thought and she let everybody know it. And the same was true for John Newton, which is why he wrote Amazing Grace. And the same can be true for us if we're humble enough to say, I am a sinner, I am broken, I am fallen, and I have no hope. I have no hope of ever paying off that debt. Lord, I need your mercy. Lord, I need your grace. Lord, I need your forgiveness and I don't deserve it. Would you please provided for me and he says yes 
the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is, says, you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but you are also more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Let's pray together. Father, it is an amazing thought. It's an overwhelming thought to think that you know the depths of my heart. You know my sin better than even I know it, and yet you still love me. And I thank you that though I, though we don't deserve your grace, we don't deserve your forgiveness, you provide that for us, and it's an amazing and a wonderful and a liberating, uh, freeing and exhilarating thought. And so I thank you for that. And I pray for myself, I pray for each of us, that day by day, moment by moment, as we're aware of your presence, rather than running from you, we would run towards you. When we sin, may we keep short accounts with you, not hesitating for a second to come and say, please forgive me. But in those moments when we're not thinking about our sin, when we're not conscious of our sin, when we're just thinking about who you are, may we praise you. May we be so overwhelmed by who you are and what you've done that we would just want to praise you and honor you and glorify you and tell other people about the incredible love that you have for us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.